Okay, well, we are continuing our healthcare ethics recordings on this crazy semester that we're having um, fighting coronavirus and doing everything by live stream and MP3. So today the topic that we're going to be talking about is transgender and gender dysphoria. I think it's important for us to understand a couple of terms before we have this conversation. First and foremost, what does transgender mean? Transgender is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior does not conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. Um, gender identity is a person's internal sense of being male, female, or something else. Gender expression is the way a person communicates gender identity to others through behavior, clothing, hairstyles, voice, or body characteristics. I think it's important for us to, again, recall the importance of language in these cultural considerations, that those who control the language control the culture. We talked about this in the abortion issue because, you know, I think saying pro-abortion versus pro-choice, I think brings forward a very different image. And so the rationale behind labeling their movement pro-choice is a, you know, a very astute one in a sense, when, when in effect, the real choice is the pro-life choice, right? And so the one that actually gives women an opportunity to move forward, regardless of their goal to become that, um, the parent of that child um, really is a choice um, that pr provides for freedom, right? This, this choice that provides for the good of the child, for the woman, um, for her health, for, um, for so many other issues that um, may impact her life later on. So in terms of the transgender and trans and gender dysphoria, I think there's some ideologies that undergird this movement that I think are important for us to talk about. The first one is this, this ideology and the language that they use that says, you know, sex assigned at birth. You see, transgender advocates no longer speak about biological sex. They claim the correct term to use is sex assigned at birth. And the reason for this is that we're not born a male or a female. Our sex is assigned at birth by our doctors or parents. Now, of course, we don't agree with that, but this is part of the language control, okay? So assigned at birth is, is one of those ideologies that undergirds the movement that claims that our sex is assigned to us at birth by our parents, by the medical professionals. It's not really biological, it's assigned. And the implications for accepting this language assigned at birth is that one's sex is no longer objectively recognized, it's fluid, it's subjectively determined. My sex is whatever I believe it or perceive it to be. The biological reality with this ideology is dismissed. It becomes irrelevant. Gender identity becomes the basis for determining one's sex. Male and female are transformed into experienced or expressed gender. 
you know that there are at least 112 genders now? Dr. Deanna Adkins runs a gender identity clinic at Duke University, and she says the appropriate determinant is gender identity, gender fluidity. So what's the current response to this? Well, the correct current response to this by the church, um, and I shouldn't say the church, the church, the church certainly does teach about the ethics of this because again, it's always concerned with all things human, but it does rely on medical professionals and the truth about biology to perdure. So there's Catholic principles that undergird this. And so this is the response. Sex is not assigned at birth and it cannot be reassigned at some later point. The biological fact is this, eggs contain X chromosomes and sperm contain either X or Y chromosome. Sex is determined at conception and can't be changed. The XX female and the XY chromosome pairs cannot and do not change regardless of how one transitions one's body. Sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. And that's actually from Dr. Paul McHugh, who used to head up the John Hopkins um, sex reassignment clinic, which we'll talk more about later. So transgender surgery is not the solution, right? Because sex is not something that can be changed. This anthropological premise of assigned at birth says that biological sex is unnecessary and irrelevant for determining one's sexual identity. And if we look at what anthropology is, anthropology is the study of human biological and physiological characteristics. And if we're holding that biological sex is unnecessary and irrelevant for determining one's sexual identity, then we're really dismissing basic biology and rationality, and that's what transgender advocates want to do. The best biology, psychology, and philosophy all support an understanding of sex as a bodily reality and of gender as a social manifestation of bodily sex. Biology is not bigotry. It's objective. The next kind of underlying um, ideology that undergirds this movement <clears throat> is the term gender dysphoria. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which provides for us diagnoses, it's called DSM. The DSM manual says this, it says, the distress that may accompany the incongruence between one's experience or expressed gender and one's assigned gender. So this definition of gender dysphoria, what the DSM manual says is the distress that may accompany the incongruence, the difference between one's experience or expressed gender and one's assigned gender. So gender dysphoria refers to the conflict, the anxiety or the distress that one experiences as a result of the fixed belief one has of being the opposite sex or some alternative sex. Where does this gender dysphoria originate? Well, the American Psychological Society replaced gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria in 2013. 
in its fifth edition of the DSM Manual of Mental Disorder. So it, the APA replaced gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria. So why would they do that? Why would they make that change? Well, the American Psychological Society wanted to remove any implication that the patient is disordered, even though many other mental health disorders remain in the DSM-5. The APA needed to re retain a diagnostic term, though, in order to access insurance coverage for gender transitioning, counseling, or hormonal interventions and surgeries. And so the most important issue was whether or not the gender identity dis disorder should be maintained in the DSM. Many activists, transgendered activists, and some clinicians certainly wanted the disorder to be removed, arguing that GID, gender um, dysphoria, was not a mental disorder and wanted it to remove, be removed for reasons similar to the removal of homosexuality from the DSM-2 in 1973. What they want to really communicate is that transsexualism was nothing more than a normal variant of gender identity. That its classification as a mental disorder contributed to the stigma and that there was nothing inherently wrong with a gender identity that was incongruent with one's biological sex. So how do we respond to that? This is how we must respond, and this is the truth about gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria and transgenderism is based in feelings, not in objective facts. DSM-5 repeatedly uses desire and conviction when defining gender dysphoria. For gender dysphoria, what matters is not that one is a male or a female, but whether one feels like a male or a female. I'm trapped in a woman's body. This, this is like gender fluidity. At the core of gender dysphoria and transgender ideology is the claim that feelings determine reality. One is what one feels or perceives oneself to be. Ideology is a body of doctrine or belief that guides an individual, social movement, institution, class, or large group of people. And if the mind is in conflict with the body, which one do we choose? The mind is always right, right? So if, if we need to discern what is reality, um, we need to look at the objectivity, and feelings do not determine reality. How does feeling like a man or a woman or something else actually make one a man or a woman? The American College of Pediatricians in 2018 said this, normality has been defined as that which functions according to its designs. One of the chief functions of the brain is to perceive physical reality. Thoughts that are in accordance with physical reality are normal. Thoughts that deviate are abnormal. They also can provide, they can be also be potentially harmful to the individual or others if they deviate from what is normal, right? And this is true whether or not the individual who possesses the abnormal thoughts feels distress, right? A person's belief that he is something or someone he is not at best is a sign of confused thinking. At worst, it's a delusion. Just because a person feels or thinks something does not make it so. If feelings of gender identity determine reality, 
then other realities must also be able to determine by person's inner sense of identity. For existence, some silly examples. A white person feels black. Are they black? Are they entitled to all the benefits of being black? Affirmative action, college admissions, scholarships, which may favor a minority community? An able-bodied person who feels disabled is disabled and is due all the benefits that go along with being disabled, like tax deductions, parking spots, disability checks. A 25-year-old person feels elderly. Are they elderly? Are they entitled now to their Social Security, to Medicare? So the challenge, really, for gender dysphoria and transgenderism is to explain why a person's real sex is determined by inner feelings of gender identity when this is not the case with any other aspect of the human person. How is it that transgenderism alone or feelings determine reality? So what's the Catholic perspective on gender identity? Well, in terms of anthropology, Catholicism maintains that humans are an intimate union of body and soul that one's body is a constitutive aspect of who one is as a person, and one's body and soul cannot be separated, unless, of course, they die. As such, we ought not accept either explicitly or implicitly any dualistic ideology that proposes that there is a self separate from the body, as transgenderism does. Catholicism also believes this about sexuality. Sexuality is a fixed and unchanging attribute endowed by God and manifested through the body as maleness or femaleness. Sexual identity, everyone male and female should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarity are oriented towards the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. The harmony of the couple and of society depends in part on the way in which complementarity, needs, and mutual support between the sexes are lived out. In light of these teachings, Catholic anthropology challenges the false premise that objective biological realities, that is chromosomes and genitalia, are irrelevant irre for understanding sexual identity. And it also rejects the notion that sex and gender are fluid or changeable. And then finally, as it relates to human dignity, the church says this, you know, Catholicism maintains that every person possesses inherent dignity because humans are created in the image and likeness of God. Transgender advocacy groups often employ the term dignity for their own ends, interpreting it to mean affirmation of any perception or perspectives that people have of themselves. Is that truth? Catholic teaching also recognizes an inalienable dignity in the fact that humans are created male and female. Being man or being a woman, the catechism says, is a reality which is good and willed by God. Man and woman possess an inalienable dignity which comes to them immediately from God their creator. Men and women have been created, which is to say willed by God on the one hand in perfect equality as human persons, and on the other in their respective beings as man and woman. Catechism 369. 
what are some papal statements that actually support kind of this idea of the human person? Well, Pope Francis in, in Laudatio C, number 155, says this, the acceptance of our bodies as God's gift is vital for welcoming and accepting the entire world as a gift from the Father and our common home. Whereas thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our own bodies turns often subtly into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. Learning to accept our body, to care for it, and to respect its fullest meaning is an essential element of any genuine human ecology. In Amoria Letizia, number 56, Pope Francis says, yet another challenge is posed by the various forms of an ideology of gender that denies the differences in reciprocity in nature of a man and a woman and envisages a society without sexual differences. This ideology leads to educational programs and legislative enactments that promote a personal identity and emotionally, emotional intimacy radically separated from the biological difference between a man and a woman. Consequently, human identity becomes the choice of the individual, one which can also change over time. It is one thing to be understanding of human weakness and the complexities of life, and another to accept ideologies that attempt to sunder what are inseparable aspects of reality. Pope Benedict XVI says this, the term gender is a new philosophy of sexuality. According to this philosophy, sex is no longer a given element of nature that man has to accept and personally make sense of. It is a social role that we choose for ourselves. The profound falsehood of this theory and of the anthropological revolution contained within it is obvious. People dispute the idea that they have a nature given by their bodily identity that serves as a defining element of the human being. Pope Benedict says they deny their nature and decide that it is not something previously given to them, but that they make it for themselves. Okay, let's go on to diagnosing and treating gender dysphoria in adults. Again, this gender dysphoria is this marked incongruence between one's experienced expressed gender and assigned gender of at least six months duration as manifested by at least two of the following things. Now, this is the diagnosis that's listed um, in the um, manual for diagnosis. So this is, this is what um, the current APA defines as gender dysphoria. So this person has to have at least two of these for at least a six months duration and must have at least the first. Number one, a marked incongruence between one's experience and expressed gender and primary or secondary characteristics, or in adolescence, the anticipated secondary sex characteristics. That's the first principle that's necessary. The second is a strong desire to be rid of one's primary or secondary sex characteristics because of a marked incongruence with one's experienced or expressed gender, or in young adolescence, a desire to prevent the development of the anticipated secondary sex characteristics. The third option, which you have to have at least one or two of, is a strong desire for the primary and or sex, secondary sex characteristics of the other gender. Number four, a strong desire to be of the other gender or some alternative gender different from one's assigned gender. A strong desire to be treated as the other gender or some alternative gender 
from one's assigned gender. And then finally, the last consideration is a strong conviction that one has the typical feelings and reactions of the other gender. So for gender dysphoria in adults, this definition, we have to have at least two of the following that I gave you, that I just listed you, listed for you, okay? So what do they say is the typical treatment for gender dysphoria? The first is psychotherapy. And the purpose for psychotherapy is to affirm the person's desire to be the opposite sex or the alternative sex. The purpose of therapy is not to discover and treat underlying mental health issues. The second movement is social transition. That is allowing patients to live and work as their preferred gender short of recourse to hormone treatment or sex reassignment therapy. The next would be transition secondary sex characteristics through cross-sex hormones. And then the final movement of treatment for gender dysphoria in the typical APA format would be surgical transition to make the patient's body resemble the patient's preferred gender, gender confirmation surgery. So they start with psychotherapy, but not to discover any problems, but to affirm the person's desire to be what they think they are. Then to socially transition them, that is allowing the patient to live and work as their preferred gender short of recourse to hormone treatment or sex reassignment surgery. Then the next stage would be to transition secondary sex characteristics through cross-sex hormones. And then finally, surgical transition to make the patient's body resemble the patient's preferred gender. Now I think things that we should ask about these treatments to kind of help us to maybe render some objectivity into this um, current discussion, we should be doing this. This treatment is a focus on symptoms. It's not a focus on underlying causes. Standard treatments for gender dysphoria focus on alleviating symptoms, not on discovering much less actually treating the underlying causes. What would happen if we treated other mental health disorders in the same way? What if for anorexia nervosa, we affirm the anorexic? We say, you are fat, and we prescribe diuretics to lose more weight and then perform gastric bypass and liposuction procedures. What if we did that? What if we, for body identity integrity disorders, that is a perceived mismatch between the mental image and the physical body, like somebody that believes they're a pirate, we affirm the patient's strong and persistent desire to be a pirate. So then we perform amputation procedures to create a hook hand and a peg leg, not to match, mention the patched eye. Okay, I am a paraplegic. We affirm the patient's strong and pers persistent desire to be disabled, and we perform a sp spinal paralysis procedure so that he becomes paralyzed. I mean, these are insane, right? We would never do this with any other medical diagnosis. Now, what about these facts? At least 70% of gender dysphoria patients suffer with other mental illness currently or in their lifetime. The most common comorbid mental illnesses include depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. There's a growing number of people who regret their sex change and are thus transitioning back. 
You can find these on sex change regret, regret websites. We have to ask practical medical questions. What about when a patient who self-reports as, as a transgendered person presents at the ER? Do we treat that person as a man or as a woman? I mean, even though they may look like a woman, they're actually a man. When prescribing meds for a patient who self-reports as transgendered, does the physician prescribe for a man or for a woman? How about children? How is one diagnosed and treated for gender dysphoria in children? This is, this is what the diagnosis calls for. A marked incongruence between one's experience, expressed gender, and assigned gender, at least six months duration, as manifested by at least six of the following, one of, much, one of which must be criterion A1. So what's A1? A1, which must be chosen, along with five others, a strong desire to be of the other gender or an insistence that one is the other gender. Number two, in boys, a strong preference for cross-dressing or simulating female attire. In girls, a strong preference for wearing only typical masculine clothing, clothing and a strong resistance to wearing feminine clothing. Number three, a strong preference for cross-gender roles in make-believe play or fantasy play. Four, a strong preference for the toys, games, or activities stereotypically used or engaged in by the other gender. Next, a strong preference for playmates of the other gender. In boys, a strong reaction of typically masculine toys. A strong rejection of typically masculine toys, games, activities, and a strong avoidance of rough and tumble play. Or in girls, their assigned gender, a strong rejection of typically feminine toys, games, and activities. Next one, a strong dislike for one's sexual anatomy. And then finally, a strong dislike for the primary and or sex, sex, secondary sex characteristics that match one's experienced gender. You have to have the first one and then six others. Now it's important to remember that in adolescence, 85 to 95% of adolescents who claim to be transgender their condition will resolve by itself by the time they go through normal puberty development. They grow out of it. The term for this growing out is desistance. D-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E, desistance. So how is the medical community treating gender dysphoria children. The standard of care for gender dysphoria children, which we do not agree with, is number one, affirmation. Affirm the child's concept of self by instituting name, pronoun changes, and facilitate the impersonation of the opposite sex both within and outside the home. Two, pubertal suppressin or puberty blockers. Number one, prevent puberty from occurring through gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists that block these receptors in the brain, which in turn prevents the secretion of endogenous sexual hormones, estrogen and testosterone. 
The rationale, of course, is to stop puberty. This is supposedly to provide psychological relief to the child. It offers the child more time to explore their identity as well as their desire for gender reassignment. During the time on puberty blockers, the child's genitals and reproductive tracts remain in a pre or early pubertal state and the pubertal growth spurt is suppressed. If puberty blockers are discontinued, puberty will ensue and any hormonal changes are reversible, although there's no real studies on that long term. If cross-sex hormones follow, the child is permanently sterilized. And then eventually cross-sex hormones. Patients graduate to cross-sex hormones at ages 14 to 16 in preparation for sex reassignment surgery as an older adolescent or adult. Some gender specialists are already bypassing pubertal suppression and instead putting children as young as 11 years old on cross-sex hormones. So what are the risks of suppressing puberty with hormones and cross-sex hormones? Well, number one, the most important risk is permanent infertility, even if one transitions back to one's true sex. Possible health risks, which aren't proven but not ruled out. Boys who take oral estrogen may be at risk for thrombosis, thromboembolism, cardiovascular disease, elevated blood pressure, decreased glucose tolerance, gallbladder disease, and breast cancer. Girls who receive testosterone may experience an elevated risk for low HDL, elevated triglycerides, hepatotoxicity, polycythemia, and increased risk of sleep apnea. In both sexes, the use of puberty-blocking drugs in adolescence has been associated with incomplete mineralization of bone, meaning future risk, possibly for osteoporosis. There is very little information on the use of these blockers on brain development, but existing studies demonstrate potential for cognitive impairment. Overall, puberty blockers are suppressing the natural development and functioning of a healthy human body. Puberty is not a medical disorder. So what's the response of the American College of Pediatricians to this treatment? Number one, they said there's no evidence. There is not one large randomized controlled study that demonstrates the alleged benefits and potential harms of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for children. Yet these medications are regularly being described to children suffering from gender dysphoria. There are no long-term randomized controlled studies that compare the outcomes of psychotherapeutic interventions for children that are suffering from gender dysphoria against those of puberty blocking long-term cross-sex hormones and synthetic steroids. Use of puberty suppression and cross-sex hormones is not supported by evidence-based medicine. The American College of Pediatricians is also concerned about an increasing trend among adolescents to self-diagnose as transgender after binges on social media sites. It's really a social contagion. Brown University did a 2018 study that was called Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria Study. And they saw that the onset of gender dysphoria seemed to occur in the context of belonging to a peer group 
where one, multiple, or even all of the friends have become gender dysphoric and transgender identified during the same time frame. In a statement defending the university's decision to remove the study from its website, a university dean stated that Brown community members have expressed concern that the study could be used to discredit efforts to support the transgender community. The American College of Pediatricians also are concerned about informed consent. They say informed consent is an ethical requirement and fundamental to the practice of medicine. Neuroscience has demonstrated that the adolescent brain is cognitively immature. It lacks the capacity needed for risk assessment prior to the earlier mid-20s. As such, the young adolescent is simply not sufficiently mature to make significant medical decisions, particularly decisions that have lifelong consequences. The treatment of childhood gender dysphoria with puberty blocking and cross-sex hormones effectively amounts to mass experimentation on and sterilization of young people who are cognitively incapable of providing informed consent. Overall, there's a serious ethical problem with allowing irreversible life-changing procedures to be performed on minors who are too young to give valid consent themselves. Adolescents cannot understand the magnitude of such decisions. The president of the American College of Pediatricians calls this child abuse. He says the crux of the matter is that while the transition affirming movement purports to help children, it is inflicting a grave injustice on them and their non-dysphoric peers. These professionals are using the myth that people are born transgender to justify engaging in massive, uncontrolled, and unconsented experimentation on children who have psychological conditions that would otherwise resolve after puberty in the vast majority of cases. Today's institutions that promote transition affirmation are pushing children to impersonate the opposite sex, sending many of them down the path of puberty blockers, sterilization, the removal of healthy body parts, and untold psychological damage. These harms constitute nothing less than institutionalized child abuse. Pretty, pretty strong statement by the president of the American College of Pediatrics. What is the Catholic perspective on these medical treatments? Well, if we look at the ERDs, we look at Directive 53. It says direct sterilization of either men or women, whether permanent or temporary, is not permitted in a Catholic healthcare institution. Procedures that induce sterility are permitted when their direct effect is the cure or alleviation of a present and serious pathology and simpler treatment is not available. Directive 33. The well-being of the whole person must be taken into account in deciding about any therapeutic intervention or use of technology. Therapeutic procedures that are likely to cause harm or undesirable side effects can be justified only by a proportionate belief, a belief to the patient. Directive 29. All persons served by Catholic healthcare have the right and duty to protect and preserve their bodily and functional integrity. The functional integrity of the person may be sacrificed to maintain the health or the life of the person when no other morally permissible means is available. The church believes in providing care in charity and truth, loving the other in truth. 
The most helpful therapies do not try to remake the body to conform with thoughts and feelings, which is impossible, but rather to help people find healthy ways to manage this tension and move toward accepting the reality of their body. This the, the therapeutic approach rests on a sound understanding of physical and mental health and of medicine as a practice aimed at restoring healthy functioning not simply satisfying the desires of patients. So healthcare providers must be guided by, from a Catholic perspective, must be guided by and promote proper understanding of the human person and sexuality. Healthcare providers must draw from sound science and medical information. Healthcare providers should draw from, should never de deny a patient uh, care based on his or her gender confusion. The healthcare provider must offer patients sound, practical resources. The providers must treat the underlying psychological factors leading to transgenderism. They should not affirm false beliefs and desires. And they should encourage patients to recognize that transgender feelings are not congruent with their bodies. So they're not in line with reality and they need to learn how to identify with their bodies. So what is the treatment that is noted for Catholic um, healthcare providers? What should we do to treat these patients who are obviously suffering? So the treatments are psychological and behavioral. Number one, expectant waiting, right? So if, if 85 to 95% of these, you know, resolve with time, then we wait, right? We wait, expectant waiting. Secondly, we, we do corrective psychotherapy that seeks to identify the root cause of gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder and move people towards acceptance of their biological reality. It is not recommended that gender affirming psychotherapy be done. We do not affirm people in something that's not real. Gender adaptation or expression therapy should not be done either. There are no physical treatments that are suggested. No pub pubertal blockers, no cross-sex hormones, no sexual reassignment surgery. What does the science say? Well, in 2016, sexuality and gender finders um, from the biological, psychological, and social sciences, written by Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh through the New Atlantis, identified these statistics based on their own transgender clinic that they ran at John Hopkins University. They say this, 0.6% of the US population identify as the gender that does not correspond with their biological sex, 0.6. The hypothesis that gender identity is an innate fixed property independent of biological sex is not supported by scientific evidence. Studies comparing the brain structures of transgender and non-transgender individuals have demonstrated weak correlations between brain structure and cross-gender identification. These correlations do not provide any evidence for a neurobiological basis for cross-gender identification. So there is no biological causation for this. Advocates claim that discrimination alone accounts for the higher rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, substance abuse, intimate partner violence, and other mental uh, behavior and social health problems. Um, but this is not 
supported by scientific um, research. Compared to the general population, adults who have undergone sex reassignment surgery continue to have higher risk of experiencing poor mental health care outcomes. So they, 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 have, they have actually done what is suggested by the transgender advocates, and they still have a higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. Only a minority of children who experience cross-gender identification will continue to do so in adolescence or adulthood. There is no evidence that all children who express gender atypical thoughts or behavior should be encouraged to become transgender. There is little scientific evidence for the therapeutic value of interventions that delay puberty or modify the secondary sex characteristics of adolescence. In 2004, there was an aggressive research intelligence um, facility review. They assessed findings of more than 100 follow-up studies of post-operative transsexuals. What did they find? They found that none of the studies provided conclusive evidence that gender reassignment is beneficial for patients. Most research that's done was poorly designed, which skewed the results in favor of sex reassignment. The results of the few studies that tracked significant numbers of patients over several years were flawed because the researchers lost track of at least half of the participants. The high dropout rate could reflect high levels of dissatisfaction or even suicide among the post-operative transsexuals. So again, this, this research that has shown any promise of transgender reassignment surgery was poorly done. The, the numbers were very small, huge numbers of dropouts, which could have indicated that those dropouts, maybe they committed suicide, maybe they you know, were, were depressed. We don't know, right? So it's poorly done research. In 2011, there was a long-term follow-up of transsexual persons undergoing sex reassignment surgery, and this was a cohort that was done in Sweden. It was a 30-year study of people post-sex reassignment surgery. The results were this, 2.8 time higher rates of inpatient psychiatric care for those folks that underwent reassignment surgery. Mortality rates, suicide rate was 19.1 times higher than comparable peers. Overall mortality rates were three times higher all types of reasons for death. So what's important is mortality from this patient population did not become apparent until after 10 years. This indicates that some negative outcomes only manifest after 10 years. Thus other short-term studies may not be as reliable. There was also a study done by the military service by transgender individuals by the US Department of Defense. There was a review of administrative data indicating that service members with gender dysphoria are eight times more likely to attempt suicide than service members as a whole. 12.5% versus 1%. Service members with gender dysphoria are also nine times more likely to have mental health encounters than the service member population as a whole. So 28.1 of those with gender dysphoria versus 2.7 encounters of those you know, service members who don't have gender dysphoria. This is mental health encounters. That was from October 2015 to October 2017. 
the 994 active duty service members diagnosed with gender dysphoria accounted for 30,000 mental health visits. So again, are we solving problems when we're providing treatment that really doesn't address the underlying issue? In 2018, there was a cross-sex hormone and acute cardiovascular event in transgender persons, a cohort study. Data from 5,000 patients with the Kaiser Permanente Health System who have taken hormone therapy for the purpose of gender transition compared with over 97,000 biological men and women of similar ages. What did they find? Men who transitioned to female on hormone therapy were 80 to 90% more likely to suffer a stroke or a heart attack than biological women. Women who transitioned to men through hormone therapy were twice as likely as biological men or women to have a venous thromboembolism, a blood clot condition. What about studies that claim that transitioning is beneficial? In 2014, the Hayes Inc. is a research and consulting firm that evaluates the safety and health outcomes of medical technologies determined that evidence on long-term results of sex reassignment therapy was too sparse to support meaningful conclusions. They did show statistically significant improve, improvements have not been consistently demonstrated by multiple studies for most outcomes. Evidence regarding quality of life and function in male to female adults was very sparse. So the study designs did not permit conclusions of causality in studies and generally had weaknesses associated with study execution. Overall, Hayes just said these studies were just not very high quality. 2016, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare looked at this. Should sex reassignment surgery be routinely covered by Medicare plans? They reviewed 33 studies. This was the decision a memo for gender dysphoria and gender reassignment surgery in 2016 under the Obama administration. After careful assessment, we identified six studies that could provide useful information. Of these, the four best designed and conducted studies that assess quality of life before and after surgery using validated psychometric studies did not demonstrate clinically significant changes or differences in psychometric tests after their gender reassignment surgery. Based on extensive assessment of the clinical evidence as described above, there is not enough high quality evidence to determine whether gender reassignment surgery improves health outcomes for Medicare beneficiaries with gender dysphoria. Unfortunately, um, the Obama administration didn't really pay much attention to that. And they basically extended um, you know, the ability of transgender um, assignment surgery uh, to be covered um, for certain individuals. And so, um, so that, that's problematic, right? Especially since um, it was really basically done by an executive order versus um, an act of, of Congress. And so, so you know, again, I, th I think that we have to be looking at these healthcare issues um, through science, through the eyes of biology, uh, always, always taking into consideration um, the dignity of the human person and who the human person is in reality. 
I think some other questions that I'll just leave you with, um, I certainly can't answer them. Um, you know, if, if transgender surgery becomes, or transitioning becomes part of our life um, as we go forward, there's all sorts of questions that come up as relate this, you know. What about education? What about boys' schools or girls' schools? Um, do we go by biological sex or transitioned sex? And what does that mean? I mean, we've seen it already in, in athletic competitions where transitioned individuals have actually, you know, begin to want, win races when a boy becomes a girl and then runs like a guy when they actually get into those, um, those races. I mean, is that, is that equality? What about bathrooms? When someone is transitioning, when someone is not yet a woman and yet they claim to be, and so they use the woman's room, but they're actually a man. Um, how, how, what do we deal with? That? You know, how do we deal with that, especially in schools? How about mandated names and pronoun use? Um, if someone's transitioning, do teachers and authority figures, you know, do they do they use those pronouns? Do they use those names? Um, you know, what's going to happen? Are we going to have sexual orientation and gender identity tra training programs now? Um, to help us to accept something that actually isn't really true. And so, um, so I think again, um, it's a difficult, difficult um, issue, but I think we do a great disservice to those who suffer from these anomalies, these disorders, by buying in um, to something that is really an illusion instead of um, the truth about who they are, um, instead of helping them to discover um, the goodness of their sexual identity, their biological um, gift of sexual complementarity, of, of femaleness or, or masculinity um, that God has actually endowed them with. Um, so a lot of food for thought, um, and I'll look forward to our discussion, discussion on, our, um, on our live stream. God bless.